This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to another podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Coming up on the programme, we find out how a religious meeting at a seaside location in North Yorkshire became a turning point in English history. And what happens with the agreement of the Synod is that the entire church in England and ultimately in Britain aligns itself with mainstream continental practice. We also discover how the Synod at Whitby determines the date of Easter. He says the Roman way of doing it is that of the universal church. It happens wherever the word of the universal Catholic church is spoken. And how a brand new visitor experience is helping tell the story. All that to come very shortly. But first, let's find out what's coming up on future episodes of the English Heritage Podcast. The flying, fire-breathing dragon is absolutely European. And what's more, it's Christian. It doesn't appear until the Middle Ages. You get flying serpents earlier, but not something that looks like a flying crocodile that breathes fire. 1539 to 40, Henry VIII is really worried about the prospect of an invasion by the French or the Spanish, that he starts to build artillery forts like this one all around the east and south coasts. It's a walk with soul. Get into the land, feel the weather, see the trees, see what stage of development that nature is in right now, see the very latest version of nature, you know. Plenty more to look forward to there. Now, let's go back to the year 664 to a clifftop location in the northeast of England. We're talking about Whitby in North Yorkshire, where a few years before, a great monastery had been founded on the headland by Hild, the daughter of a nobleman. And it was here where English history was about to change forever. The problem was that the spread of Christianity across the country through Irish and Roman missionaries meant it was being practised differently. And one of the biggest problems was when to observe Easter. So a synod was convened at Whitby to decide on a way forward. Joining me to explain more about this historic synod is Dr Michael Carter, Senior Properties Historian at English Heritage. Michael, thanks for speaking to us. It's my pleasure. Now, Michael, when we talk about the synod, what does that mean in plain modern English? I presume we're talking about a meeting or a gathering. You've hit the nail on the head. It's a meeting of the church, but it also involves royalty and aristocrats in mid-7th century Northumbria, the leading Anglo-Saxon kingdom in England at that time. An analogy would be a meeting of both houses of parliament, I suppose, both civil and ecclesiastical power in one place. So take us back to Northumbria in the 7th century. What was Mm. Whitby like in terms of the people and the politics then? Well, this is a 
a time of huge dynamism, both political and religious. It's a time where the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, the kingdom of Northumbria, is establishing itself. And it's also a time of religious conversion. The Anglians who have settled Northumbria after the collapse of the Roman Empire are now converting to Christianity. And a monastery is founded at Whitby in 657 by King Oswy of Northumbria under the leadership of a remarkable woman called Hild. And it's a dual house of both monks and nuns, as I said, led by Hild. The monastery of Whitby would have been a kind of small town. And we've got a recording of a church, we've got a mention of houses for novices, and also of 40 small huts where the community there prayed. And it's also unusual to have monks and nuns in the same place, or was that normal back then? Well, at that time, it was normal indeed. And it's often interesting as well under the leadership of an abbess rather than an abbot. Wow, so a really different kind of culture. Yeah, it really was a monastic culture at that time, although there are threads of continuity through to what we think of being later medieval monasticism and indeed monasticism to this day. We're starting to get the introduction of the dominant form of religious life in the West, the rule of St Benedict into England around this time. Indeed, one of the key players at the Synod who we'll get to presently. St Wilfred has been credited with the introduction of the rule of St Benedict to northern England. But it's a different kind of monasticism, yes. So we're really in the early stages of the evolution of Christianity in England. We are indeed. It's, as I said, it's a, it's a time of great conversion and that's key to the Synod and what was happening in Northumbria, in the Anglian Kingdom of Northumbria at this time. So what's so important about Whitby? Why was Whitby chosen to host this Synod? Well, it's because it's a royal foundation, as I said. It's founded by King Oswy and it's King Oswy who calls the Synod. It's easy to get to. It's a coastal location. The only highways in uh, Anglo-Saxon England at this time were, were Roman roads, some of which would be the best part of 600 years old and hadn't been properly maintained. Land transport was very difficult indeed. Sea transport was so much easier. And we have a number of these monasteries in the Kingdom of Northumbria founded near great river mouths to, uh, to aid communication. That's fascinating. And also, another factor is, all, I'm sure, is the leadership of Hild. She's mentioned as being wise, very, very wise, to whom both princes and paupers turned to for her counsel. So why was a meeting about how to practice Christianity in a uniform way so important in those days? We're obviously in the early stages of Christianity. I guess there needed to be a consensus on the way forward and how this religion would be practised. Well, yeah, you've, again, you've hit the nail on the head. And the dispute centres on the most important event in Christian belief, which is the, res the date of the resurrection of Christ, Christ's death on the cross and resurrection three days later. And there are two rival traditions or two rival ways of doing things in Northumbria at this time. And it's connected to missionaries who's converted the nobles at the Northumbrian court. First of all, missionaries who've arrived in Kent, sent directly from Rome under St Paulinus, convert a number of Anglo-Saxon nobles and King Edwin. There's a bit of a disaster. Edwin's killed. The conversion process goes into abeyance. And then King Oswald is restored to the Northumbrian throne. And he has been converted to Christianity according to an Irish practice. He's gone into exile in Ireland. He's been to the monastery of Iona. And he comes back and brings Irish missionaries with him. Now, Christianity has been established in Ireland since the 4th century and has a very strong 
missionary character to it. And they have different traditions, the Irish and the Roman missionaries. And that comes to a head over the, the calculation for the date of Easter. And that's, of course, the most important date in the Christian calendar. Absolutely. This is it. This is the, the fundamentals of Christianity. It is Christ's offering humanity the chance of everlasting salvation, his sacrifice on the cross and resurrection three days later, his conquering of death, which is key to the Christian message. And what we find is because there is this dispute about when to observe the date of Easter, that some recent converts in the Northumbrian court are thinking, hey, hang on a second, have I converted in vain? Why have I done this when they can't agree on such a fundamental issue to their faith? Well, I was going to ask you about that. Why is it such an issue to have different sects um, worshipping in different ways? Well, yeah, I mean, it wasn't really sects. Let's, I mean, that's a, you know, they agree on the fundamental. In Western Europe, there's agreement on when to keep the date of Easter. And Easter has to be on a Sunday. That's been agreed since the days of the earliest ecumenical council of the church, the Council of Nicaea, called in the early 4th century after the conversion of Constantine the Great. It has to follow the spring equinox and it has to be on the first Sunday following the spring equinox. Now, the problem is there are differences between the Irish and the Romans on when the spring equinox falls and the day of the month. And it all gets very, very complicated and it leads to some major discrepancies in when Easter is being kept. We're told by Bede, who's uh, the great Anglo-Saxon historian, monk historian, a great scandal arose one year because King Oswy, who was following the Irish tradition, was already celebrating Easter, whereas his wife, who was being brought up with the, uh, the Kentish Roman tradition and had a Roman chaplain, was still keeping Palm Sunday. Now, Lent is a great time of abstinence and self-denial. So you had within the same court two different observances going on at the same time. And that was thought to be very, very scandalous and very worrying indeed. And it could no longer be tolerated. So this was a really, really important date to get nailed down so that everyone knew exactly how they were worshipping. And I suppose this was important for political reasons, to make sure that people were, in a sense, controlled. And, and there was a kind of a law, religion and law were sort of moving hand in hand in, in this kind of way. I think it's important for the core and it's important for the process of conversion. Yes, if there is a political dimension to it, it's that they want uniformity at the core. I don't think there's an element of social control related to it. It's seen as being discrediting to the church, and it's seen as being important to get right, but I'm not persuaded there's a, an element of social control to it. OK. We've gone through the main reasons, Michael, for why the Synod had to be convened, but there's also a more slightly frivolous reason for it, and I understand it's to do with haircuts. Yeah, now it might seem frivolous to us, but it mattered immensely to people at that time. And it's the style of haircut worn by a monk, and it's called, that's called the monastic tonsure. There are three different ways of doing it around this time. Now there's a type that we're most familiar with, and that's the shaving of the top of the head. In, and, and, and Beads tells us that's because it's an imitation of Christ and the crown of thorns. Then there's a, an Eastern way of doing it, which is to shave the whole head. And then there's an Irish way of doing it, which is to shave the front of the 
the head. This is mentioned as being another reason for the Synod being convened to settle this question as well. So it's showing, you know, are you an adherent of continental practices or are you claiming to follow another practice? Who attended this Synod then? And tell us about the views that they represented. There are three people we really need to be aware of. That's King Oswy, who convenes the Synod. Then we have his own bishop, Bishop Coleman of Lindisfarne, and he presents the Irish case. And then we have Wilfred. Now, he's also a Northumbrian, he's a local boy, but he's been to Rome. And he's very, very much adopted the continental forms of religious observance. And how did these three main parties come to their decision? Coleman's asked to present his case and he appeals to his tradition. Speaks quite honourably about it and he's given a, given a good listening to. Then Wilfred stands up to speak and a much longer speech is put into his mouth by Bede and that is because Bede is very, very much a supporter of Wilfred's case. He appeals to universality. He says the Roman way of doing it is that of the universal church. It's the practice in Italy. It's the practice in Rome. In fact, it's, it happens wherever the word of the universal Catholic church is spoken. And he is quite damning about the observance of Coleman and the Irish adherents. Most of Ireland had conformed to Roman observance on the day of Easter by the time of the Synod. And Wilfred actually makes the point and says, you know, are you going to be idiosyncratic, unlike everybody else, in, this, in just a small part of two remote islands out in the ocean? Coleman says that his argument comes from the Apostle St John, John the Evangelist. Wilfred says, aha, my tradition comes from St Peter. Christ says to Peter, you are the rock on which I shall build my church, and also gives Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And also he says, is this true, Coleman? And Coleman said, yes, it is. And he says, well, can you claim similar authority being given to your apostle? And he says, no. So Oswe says, well, as Peter is the keeper of the keys of the kingdom of heaven, I'm not going to do anything to upset him for when I appear before him and want admission to heaven. He therefore decides in favour of Wilfred and the Roman argument. Coleman won't adhere to it. He retires to Scotland and then ultimately to Iona and he takes his adherents with him. But Hild and the community at Whitby, which had originally supported the Irish case, conform, as does the overwhelming majority of the Northumbrian church. So that was the decision made and that was the turning point in English history. Why was it so important as a turning well, point in English history? From the outset, from the time of the arrival of the Roman missionaries to convert the Anglo-Saxons to English, was St Augustine's mission, sent by Pope Gregory the Great. They arrive in Kent in 597. There was an umbilical link between the Anglo-Saxon church and the papacy in Rome, and that endures until the Reformation. And what happens with the agreement of the Synod is that the entire church in England and ultimately in Britain aligns itself with mainstream continental practice. And there is uniformity of observance in, in the English church on these key fundamentals of Christian belief. 
And that, and as I said, that, you know, although there are Viking invasions and monasticism and much of Northern England is snuffed out as a consequence of that, throughout the Middle Ages, this strong cultural and it's as much as a cultural as a religious link, endures between England and the continent. And of course, later on, several hundred years later, there was going to be a split when Henry VIII dissolved the monasteries and Absolutely. cut himself off from Rome. And, and, and you know, I, on a recent BBC television programme, it was all described as being creative destruction and, you know, haven't the iconoclasts left as a new vision of beauty? Actually, it was absolutely horrible what happened in mid-16th century England. People died, they were burnt, beheaded, disemboweled for their belief in the monasteries and the defence of the monasteries. And you only have to look at the decaying ruins of Whitby Abbey to get a sense of just what a major cultural and religious fissure, an enduring mark in the English landscape has been left by the suppression of the monasteries and it extinguished a thousand-year-old way of life in England. And we can argue about the positive consequences of the English Reformation, but we also have to acknowledge just how destructive it was and what an enormous fissure it represented in English life and English history. So England, in a way, had a pretty good run of a thousand years, agreeing on the way that they would practice Christianity in a certain way. I mean, and let's not forget as well that, you know, there's an enormous legacy to this day that we still observe Easter in the Church of England. And so many of the traditions of the Church of England stem from what was brought to England at the time of the missionaries in the 6th and 7th century. So there's an enduring legacy of the decisions and the conversion process at that time. You mentioned just before, obviously, Whitby Abbey almost standing as as an epitaph, I suppose, of a headstone in a way of what happened in the Reformation and the the dissolution of the monasteries. We we should point out, of course, to listeners that this is an 11th century building that occupies the site where... uh, the uh, synod would have taken place. It would yeah. have been, wouldn't have been in that building in 664. Yeah. Um, nothing remains above ground of, of the monastery of St Hill. There's some excavated neo-contemporary remains of it. The monastery is refounded after the Norman conquest by a knight called Reinfried, who has participated in the harrying of the north which is the brutal crushing of a, a northern rebellion against the rule of uh, William the Conqueror. I mean, it's, it's genocidal. The, the descriptions of what's happening to this day are truly horrifying. And Reinfrid is a Norman knight, and he is overcome by emotion at the sight of the holy places of the Anglo-Saxon north, including Whitby. And he puts the swords to one side and determines to become a monk. And he comes to uh, Whitby with a set of followers and resettles the site of the monastery, and they live there as hermits. And ultimately, the community there adopt Benedictine monasticism. Uh, they build a church in the late 11th, early 12th century. It's start working a church in the early 12th century, rather. That's replaced from the early decades of the 13th century onwards with the ruins of the magnificent monastery you can see to this day. And that has now got an ancillary visitor centre, which has now been updated. There is a museum associated with the site and a visitor centre, and that's housed in a mansion built in the 17th century for the Chomley family, who purchased Whitby Abbey after the suppression of the monasteries. From this spring, visitors will be able to experience a brand new museum telling the history of occupation on the headland from prehistoric, from Jurassic times, actually, through to... 
uh, almost the present day with literary and artistic responses to the monastery and much improved visitor facilities as well. And as you go around the site, there'll be a new set of information panels providing much, much more information about the architecture of the building, of what you can see in front of you and the events that took place there from the synod to the German bombardment of Whitby and the North Sea ports in 1914. There's so much history there. Uh, absolutely. And as I said, you know, the depth of the history, that the headland at Whitby on which the monastery stands has been occupied by humans from probably the Bronze Age onwards. It's quite a remarkable site. And of course, today, for, for so many people will know it because of its association with uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, the ruins looming over the town of Whitby when the Demeter on which Dracula lands in England, jumping ashore in the form of a monstrous dog. And then when he, his first um, victim on English soil is attacked in the churchyard of St Mary's with the ruins of the monastery behind. And the monastery as well, the ruins of the monastery, the headland of Whitby, have attracted so many other great artists. You know, probably the greatest of all English artists, J.M.W. Turner, sketched and painted the ruins of Whitby Abbey. It's a real cultural mecca, I would say, and, and historical mecca as well. A real turning point in English history, as, as we've covered. One of the final things I'd like to ask, Michael, is um, what's one of your favourites from the new museum? Favourite exhibitions or, or artefacts? There are fragments of crosses dating from the, the, the monastery uh, founded there by St Hild. And they also have something called the Abbot's Book, which is a collection of charters and early an early history of the monastery written by the monks themselves. And I spend so much of my time looking at crabby handwriting in medieval manuscripts and documents that it's quite lovely to see one of these on display at one of our sites and its significance to understanding the history of Whitby Abbey explained to the visiting public. It's 700 years old. It's really quite a remarkable survival. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. You can find out more about the Synod and Whitby Abbey on the English Heritage website. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this one, there'll be another one along in a week, so make sure to subscribe. Thanks for listening. See you next time.